As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, we have something from the very deep past. In fact, it's so deep in the past to be almost inconceivable that we are able to talk about it in such detail. We're talking about the Uluburun ship, which sank somewhere around 3,400 years ago, near what is now Kash in Turkey. The subsequent excavation, carried out at a time when underwater excavation was a new discipline, had a profound change on the way that we understand the ancient world. It still remains one of the oldest shipwrecks ever discovered, and the entire story is quite astonishing. To find out more, I spoke with the brilliant Professor Michael Scott. He's an old friend from the history world, and he's just written a book called X Marks the Spot, the story of archaeology in eight extraordinary discoveries. And yes, you've guessed it, one of them is the Ulibaroon shipwreck. So without further ado, here is the man who has captured the excitement of Indiana Jones with his story of extraordinary discovery. Here is Michael. Michael, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. It's a pleasure, Sam. Great to be with you. Um, right, let's, why did you write this book? Let's start at the very beginning. Well, uh, for, for me, it kind of, it, you know, we, we are in the world of, of discoveries uh, of, of the past and we spend an awful lot of time kind of thinking about the things that are found and what they can tell us about the ancient civilizations uh, that they, they came from. But increasingly, and, you know, also at the same time, I must admit to being a big fan of Indiana Jones uh, and obviously kind of, you know, there's a new Indiana Jones film coming out this year. Kind of he comes back aged 80, still being able to do what, <laughs> what he can do. But um, for me also, the story was increasingly about how the things were found that we go on to examine and explore and try to understand. And those discovery stories and indeed the stories of the discoverers themselves I think are an equally fascinating and important part um, of of our kind of past uh, to uncover because at the end of the day, we can't look for everything in the mm. world from the past. Every time we look for and find something, it is part of an active choice 
to search in a particular place for a particular kind of thing from a particular kind of past. And the more I sort of dug and discovered, the more I realised that that is in no way just sort of simply, you know, a random choice scribbled down on a piece of paper by the, the people involved. Often there are, you know, pretty serious factors that are weighing in that are encouraging, nudging, pushing, guiding, curating that choice towards a particular place at a particular time. Then there are the fascinating characters and individuals involved in the process who are often quite weird and wacky and wonderful. And then there's the actual story of the discovery itself. Um, and, and that all came together. So I started investigating that. And then, of course, at the same time, you've got the interesting stuff that the, the actual objects or sites or locations can tell you about the past. But then I realised there was a third factor involved which is kind of what's happened since the discovery. We kind of think of discovery as a eureka moment and then it's kind of happened. But what became increasingly clear is that not only does discovery sometimes take a while, you know, a number of the examples and, and, and the one we'll be uh, you know, talking about today was 10 years worth of excavation to, to uncover the shipwreck at the bottom of the sea. But then obviously there's a longer period of time even after that when they're analysing and studying the stuff to get, the, get it to open up and tell its story. But then that doesn't even stop then, because those sites, those discoveries, those ideas become part of a public imagination, that they're part of a public discussion, which never stops. So kind of the book for me was trying to do three things. On the one hand, it was trying to say, look, you know, we need to be interested in the factors behind that curated and guided and pushed people to look for a particular past in a particular place at a particular time. We need to be more interested in the stories of the individuals who made the discoveries and then also kind of of the discovery itself, not just as a moment, but as a process. And then we need to be more aware of how actually what these discoveries come to mean, what they do, how that happens, both in the academic world and in the wider public world and in how the two interact. Yeah. Do you think that the kind of great period of amazing historical discovery has now passed do you think we're going to find more amazing things in the future or do you think it was all kind of it, it was something that happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s when we started looking and no one really done it before? No, I do think that, you know, discoveries will continue to be made. I mean, what I tried to do in the book is, uh, you know, the first discovery we focus on is, is that of the Rosetta Stone in Egypt you know, in 1799, really at the very start of the modern discipline of archaeology's development, really. Um, mm. and, uh, but the last discovery we look at is, is, is happening right now, you know, in 2022, 2023, um, on the island of Keros in the Aegean. So, you know, these mm. great That's discoveries don't, you know, don't, end yes we we don't have we don't have the stories in the same way of people going i want to know what's uh, in that blank on the world map i'm going to walk off and discover and go somewhere that no one's ever been before uh, like Aral stein in china or whatever yeah, you yeah. know exactly that kind of sort of um but what we do have is at the same time you know there's still an awful lot of past out there to find um and <laughs> our our search will still be kind of guided towards particular places and particular paths at particular times by kind of our this wider set of factors um and at the same time of course we've got technology continuing to evolve alongside that is making discoveries of more intricate and more kind of microscopic uh, uh, types more possible um, and that means going back to some of the discoveries we've made in the past and thinking afresh about what they might tell us now more about about their ancient worlds that they come from but equally it means we can have all new types of discoveries of things going forward into the future. 
Yeah, well, um, you sent me a copy of this book and I loved it. And um, and I said to you, you know, let's do something that's based on uh, a maritime theme. You suggested doing the Ulubarun shipwreck. But I, I should probably uh, mention there are all sorts of other maritime themes here as well, not least the Rosetta Stone, which we've just mentioned, and I don't think we can carry on and not talk about it. Um, I should make the point here for our listeners that... Um, founded Egypt um, during Napoleon's time there. So he had to build a fleet. He had to get his ships across to Egypt. Uh, We then chased him and then destroyed his fleet um, and then took all of the French spoils of war back to England, which is why the Rosetta Stone is back in the British British Museum. Um, So there is a fascinating naval history to that. So, uh, Michael, just give us a bit of uh, information about the Rosetta Stone and why it's important. Yeah, so as you said, you know, Napoleon chose uh, to invade Egypt. Now, you know, kind of talking about those factors of why why Egypt at that point in time, partly it was because uh, France wanted a, a counterpoint to kind of British power in India, uh, and they thought yeah. Egypt was 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 it for them. But also, Egypt was rapidly rising up the, the tables of, of kind of serious academic interest as holding, particularly ancient Egypt, a sort of cultural, mystical, magical, sort of sacred set of knowledge that if somehow modern countries could access that or become the cultural inheritors of that they could uh, take on that mantle um, and you know that's symbolized by at the time you know if you wanted to show that you were kind of uh, a radical new thinker uh, you built sort of uh, things that looked a bit like pyramids um, you know in Egyptian architecture and of course there was no more radical place at the time than revolutionary France so France was doubly interested in both owning Egypt as a sort of part of the great power game of of the the, that period but also to become um, the kind of inheritors of the cultural uh, kind of wonder of ancient Egypt and that's why Napoleon when he went uh, to Egypt he didn't just take an army in the fleet um, he also took in that in that fleet alongside that a large number of academics Uh, and they they were called les savants uh, who were sort of spread across the different ships so you know in case some ships got captured he wouldn't lose all his academics Uh, and so when he got to Egypt they quickly got I wish people cared about it yeah. as much nowadays. <laughs> um, you know, they got to Egypt and they set up, you know, a research institute in Egypt in the in the, the days and weeks following the invasion and spent all their time uh, researching stuff. Um, and, and that was everything from discovering kind of, you know, how does a how how does a mirage work to uh, kind of understanding more of the geography of Egypt to, of course, studying the ancient past of Egypt. And at that time. All that was really known was 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 the pyramids, just about, and it, it kind of. But but no one had ever explored into into southern, into upper Egypt, and then of course this miraculous find came out of the ground when a bunch of soldiers were digging a fort at the the town of Rashid, and uh, they recognised that this stone had uh, writing on it, and it was passed up to a superior. And again, again, it shows you the academic influence over the whole expedition because the superior kind of recognised that there was Greek writing on it and that there were other languages these were the Egyptian languages of hieroglyphics and and at that time kind of unknown demotic and that there was a potential here for uh, actually being able to translate between the three because the person could read the Greek and in the Greek it said you know the same text here is written in three languages so this stone rather than just being chucked in a building heap by soldiers immediately gets passed up the chain back to the Les Savants who were sitting in the institute uh, in in their new institute in Cairo and um, they get to work on it and they get to work on 
on it by uh, making presses of it so that they sort of copying the the text on the stone and they are immediately sent out to academics around Europe um, to get to work on trying to decipher it but it would take another 20 years long after the stone had been as you said taken over by the British and sailed back to uh, to London and installed in the British Museum and a fourth language added to the stone when they wrote on the side you know this is a gift to the king um, in English uh, it would take 20 years before kind of enough pieces were in place for the academics to actually be able to crack the the hieroglyphic code and once again open up the language of Egyptian hieroglyphs which of course had been read by humanity and understood by humanity very very well but with the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christianity in the fourth century AD hieroglyphs had become a pagan language and thus not one that should be used or spoken and so humanity had collectively lost the ability to read hieroglyphs and here was a moment and a piece of the past that actually enabled us to relearn a skill we had once had and chose to lose. Yeah. Amazing story and also fascinating to see it there in the British Museum. And it also makes us think about the other objects in the British Museum. I'm thinking particularly here of the Elgin marbles, which were acquired at roughly the same time and carried back to the UK on on British ships, British shipping as well. And um, so always worth thinking about the maritime aspect of those collections. Um, but now let's get to our shipwreck we were going mm-hmm. to talk to. So um, you needed to um, think of you know several discoveries from the whole history of wonderful archaeological discoveries. Why did you settle on this shipwreck? Well, I think this is incredibly important to to showcase the moment, which you know was from the 60s onwards when uh, archaeology went underwater. Uh, and and this this shipwreck, the Ulleborn shipwreck, really sits at the very you know origin point of that story. But also, still to this day, is the deepest, largest scale diving project conducted with normal scuba equipment underwater. So it was it was simultaneously kind of right at the beginning of of of, of archaeology goes goes underwater, but still to this day stands as as one of the greatest achievements of underwater archaeology and has initiated obviously a whole new branch of archaeology as a result, which is now done to even deeper depths with submersible craft and you know does uh, the advent advances in technology can do even more incredible things but i think this story is that perfect combination of human endeavor tenacity really at the very edge of human possibility and potential at the time uncovering something which actually also at the end of the day completely revolutionized and opened up our understanding of the bronze age mediterranean yeah, there's, I like it. There's such a great story because there's a history within a history here. So obviously everyone focuses on the wreck, but I think the history of diving for sea sponges is amazing. <laughs> and that's how we found the wreck in the first place. So we could talk a little about that. Yeah, so, you know, kind of actually sponge diving kind of within the Mediterranean, particularly off the Turkish coast, has been a long, long, long kind of natural employment for the area. And, you know, we have lots of stories actually before the Ulleborn shipwreck of sponge divers and, and the ancient past coming into contact with one another and when you think about it it's kind of obvious isn't it these guys are spending a huge amount of time on the sea floor so they are going to come across bits of the past that have ended up on the bottom of the sea floor on a regular basis and you know we could look at um, in 1900 for instance sponge divers who were diving off um, the tiny island of Antikythera uh, kind of uh, came across a whole heap of statues at the bottom of the sea and at that time 1900 uh, the aqualung wasn't invented uh, you know kind of the, the the Greek Ministry of Culture had no kind 
kind of official means of, of archaeologically excavating what was down there. So they employed the sponge divers to do it. Um, and they brought up a bunch of statues at great cost, you know, because of the depths that they were working at. Then in 1953, uh, another kind of sponge diving, which kind of thankfully we don't do so much anymore, but it's just called dragging, where the, the ships just go with very, very deep uh, a net, which is attached to a sort of metal bar that's running along the uh, the floor of the sea and just sort of yanking up everything that it finds at the on the floor of the sea, including hopefully, obviously for them, some sponges, brought up a beautiful statue of Demeter. But again, it says, well, you know, they weren't looking for it. And actually for them, it was a bit of an annoyance because it could tear their net and break their net. So it got dumped on a beach, thankfully then found by a passerby. And it now sits in the um, Izmir Archaeological Museum. So there's a there's a kind of potted history of sponge diving and, and engaging with the past and sometimes actually being employed to find the past that goes through until about the, the 1970s when what had happened at that stage was uh, kind of there had been a guy called George Bass who was based in the States and he'd been um, kind of trained up as a scuba diver and was one of the first people ever who was a, an actual archaeologist to go down underwater and work on finds in situ underwater. Up to that point, you'd employed a, um, somebody who was actually a scuba diver uh, kind of after the invention of the Aqualung in the 19, 1940s to go down, bring the stuff up and then hand it over to archaeologists who would then study it. But here we had a kind of unique moment in which actually you had an archaeologist being trained as a, 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 a scuba diver to go down and explore sites in situ as they were found under the water. And during the um, late 50s and, and early 60s, he, this guy George Bass, had been involved in uncovering a shipwreck um, just off the Turkish coast at a place called Cape Geledonia. And this was a Bronze Age, Bronze Age um, shipwreck. And he realised huge potential here for archaeologists to be actually able to get underwater um, and, and look at these, these great finds in situ and be able to really do proper archaeological excavation discovery uh, of these uh, objects as they as they came into to light. So he set up the Institute of Nautical Archaeology but he realised that you know it's a big sea out there and he was you know looking for needles I don't know what the underwater equivalent is of a needle in a haystack um, but uh, you know that was his that was his trauma and then he realised that actually if he worked with the sponge diving crews that were working off the Turkish coast, he could in an instant maximise his knowledge of what was on the seabed over a wide area because, you know, he calculated that sponge divers on average over across the sponge diving season were spending something like 10,000 hours um, underwater mm. collectively. Wow. That's a massive amount of collective knowledge. So he spent the 70s speaking to every single one of the active sponge divers that were working um, from the, the Turkish ports and talking to them about the sorts of things that they he would like for them to look out for. And of course, you know, these guys are not trained archaeologists. So, you know, it was a question of saying, right, OK, these are the telltale signs. These are the kinds of objects we might expect to find if it's a Bronze Age ship. And the particular thing that he liked to, to flag up to everyone was something called the oxhide ingot, uh, which is a, a weird sort of particular shape in which uh, plates of copper 
particularly were carried on ships in the Bronze Age. And it's called an oxhide ingot because it sort of looks like a square, um, but with its sides a bit stretched out and pulled out. And people thought that that was what an oxhide skin looked like when it was being dried in the sun. So these things are called <laughs> oxhide ingots. And he'd showed pictures to them um, through the 70s. Uh, and then you get to 1982, and a sponge diver who was then in his 20s called Mehmet uh, Kakir uh, was sponge diving off um, the, the, the Turkish town of Kash, which is on the, the southern coast of Turkey. Um, Where I went for my honeymoon. Oh, well, you know, kind of, you, kind of, <laughs> uh, the, uh, you, you know it well then. You comes with a top yeah. recommendation. I've been um, in that part of the Aegean. I've had a nice swim. You had a nice I didn't swim. find a shipwreck, unfortunately. <laughs> kind of, uh, but there he was diving for sponges, remember? And he saw one of these oxide ingots. Although, kind of, he preferred to to call them metal biscuits with ears. Um, that's what, that was his expression for them. And so he reported this up to uh, his captain, and they reported it through to. Uh, by this stage, there was uh, the Bodrum uh, Museum of Underwater Underwater Archaeology, which had just been uh, set up, um, and that got back to to George Bass and to the Institute of Nautical Archaeology. Um, and so in 1983, the following year, they went for an initial inspection. And they, you know, Mehmet was absolutely right. 45 metres down underwater, um, there was uh, a kind of a massive haul um, of uh, these metal biscuits with ears, oxide ingots, um, uh, as well as kind of innumerable other pieces of a shipwreck. And when they brought up those first initial finds, that dated it to somewhere between 1400 and 1300 BCE, which at the time was the oldest shipwreck that had ever been found in the Mediterranean. Yeah, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about that period to give uh, our listeners some sense of just how old it was. There's a wonderful bit in, in your book and you say, well, it's a thousand years before the Roman Empire, which I think really helps us kind of put it into some kind of context. Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy amount of, you know, we are talking three, 3,300 years ago. Um, and, you know, what are our expectations? We talk about the Bronze Age. You know, we sort of have this idea of, of OK, you know, it's called the Bronze Age because people are, are sort of making bronze. But that gives us so little idea of what people were doing on the sea, doesn't it? And kind of what people were able yeah. to do and how they were able to move about. Um, and in particular, in this case, you know, how sophisticated the connections were between the many different thriving civilizations around the Mediterranean and into, you know, Asia Minor and into Central Asia that existed at the time. This was a, you know, a, a, we're in the sort of latish Bronze Age period. So kind of there are lots of amazing complex civilizations on land. But what the Ulubarun shipwreck went on to unveil for us was just how um, seriously engaged they all were in communicating and trading with one another by sea. Yeah, extraordinary. What do we know about the? Um, uh, well, what do we think we know about the the merchant who owned this amazing vessel? So it kind of. It, it took 10 years. I mean, I just want to sort of, for a moment, just pay a tribute to kind of what <laughs> what, what George Bass and, and, and his sort of second in command, Jamal Pulak, and, and the team did. Because for 10 years, they excavated every season. They did 22,413 dives, spent wow. 6,600 hours underwater, all of that time working within the 250 square metre area and you know they're doing it at somewhere between 45 meters and up to 60 meters under the water because the ship was actually had come to, to rest at a 30 degree angle and then of course over the thousands of years it'd been underwater bits of it had fallen further down the slope so this was an incredibly 
complex um, excavation. And you know, my particular favourite um, kind of reflection from from George Bass and his team is that um, obviously when you're underwater, you're breathing your your air, and that's a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen. But nitrogen at depth is narcotic, um, and so his his golden rule was that for every fifty feet you go down underwater, um, the narcotic effect of the nitrogen you're breathing is equivalent to drinking a gin martini. Uh, and so so he was he was estimating that his team were working um, at three and a half gin martinis down <laughs> uh, kind of repeatedly diving, diving, diving year after year after year to map every single find that they came across to then uh, draw it, photograph it, study it and then slowly release it and bring it back to the surface. And it is testament to what they've done that the entire wreck, every single piece of that wreck has been brought up and is now installed in the Bodrum Museum of Underwater Archaeology, where you can go and visit it today um, and see it kind of kind of you know, brought back together um, in, in, in all its glory. So yeah. as a result of that, we've been able to ask key questions like the one you, you ask, which is kind of what do we know about the captain? And you suddenly think, well, how are we going to know anything about, about an individual? Well, none of, none of the individual survives but a lot of the objects that those people who were on board the ship surrounded themselves with did and we can distinguish a little bit between uh, the the kind of goods that were on board to trade and were being moved around and sold because they're in very large quantities um, and they're of particular kinds and objects and we can have a chat about about some of those because effectively we have the largest collections of objects of traded objects in lots of different categories on board this ship that has ever been found but then of course you find all the small objects or the one-off objects um, that speak to the individuals who were actually living on board and commanding this vessel and crucial here are the kind of weights and balances so these guys were moving from port to port and they were having to kind of ascertain whether the stuff they were buying what it was worth what it weighed what it, what that would be the equivalent of in a different kind of uh, metal or material so as a trader having an accurate set of weights and balances was your absolute go-to object that you had by your person and you would trust in and you would keep and people traders invested huge amounts in having quite personalized um, ornate sets of weights and balances so we have a, a number of little sets that have been found that are actually all kind of curated into and carved into the shapes of different animals and one particularly nice ornate set that we think belonged to the captain of the vessel uh, that are of Phoenician Canaanite origin so that means coming from sort of today's Middle East area um, so we're pretty sure that the captain of the vessel along with a couple of other objects that seem to be his like a very nice high quality sword um, that's where he's coming from where the crew is coming from um, and uh, then sort of other telltale signs allow us to understand a little bit of the journey of the ship as it moved around that part of the world uh, kind of on it on its trading missions say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Mm, it's extraordinary. And I love the, um, the sense of the value of the entire cargo. And we haven't really spoken in much detail about it yet. But we'll go on to do that in a moment. But um, there was this fact that it was equivalent to worth something like a thousand years salary for someone, someone normal living at yeah. the time, which is uh, almost impossible to get your head around. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where we come back to this idea. Hey, we have to remember, we're over a thousand years before the Roman Empire here. What, what are our, imp- our impressions of what people were doing on the sea in this period in the late Bronze Age? And here we have a ship it's only 15 to 16 meters long but it had 20 tons of cargo on board right this is just one ship obviously kind of it's not it done it there's no indication that this was a particularly unusual trading ship this is just kind of one of the ships that was plowing the seas running between the different communities and civilizations that had um coastal ports you know kind of around the, the eastern mediterranean uh and uh, kind of collecting and selling cargo as they go and you know the total value of that cargo has been calculated to be as you say uh, sort of the equivalent of a thousand years salary of your average worker or you know you could calculate it another way which says that you know basically it could run one of the major towns um of of one of the great trading civilizations for a year uh you know everyone living in it and so a kind of this is a huge amount of wealth that is um uh, kind of moving around the mediterranean and which must have been sorely missed when sadly it sunk to the bottom of the sea when they kind of misread uh the the the, the winds kind of around oh. around the 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 what's known as in the area while well, you probably visited it while you were there on your honeymoon but cape Ulubarun um near cash which yeah. we think the ship kind of floundered against and, and as a result sunk to the bottom of the sea but lucky for us in some ways that it did I thought that the cylinder seals sounded fascinating. Tell us about them. Yeah, so this was another of the the kind of sets of objects that were found uh, kind of within the, the 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 ship itself. So you had the really big objects. So we just to sort of put it in context, you had those you know those big copper oxhide ingots, the things that that Mehmet mm-hmm. first saw. You know, and there were three hundred and fifty four of them, uh, all neatly stacked. Um, and then there was about another one hundred and twenty tin ingots, because of course you need copper and tin to make bronze. There we go. So we've got our kind of big metal kind of uh, ballast. That 
that, that's uh, going around. Um, then there were uh, 149 uh, what are known as Canaanite jars, uh, and these are massive kind of big jars that hold kind of some of them up to sort of 25 or more litres apiece, and they were all filled with something called um, terebinthine resin, which is kind of was used as a wine preservative. Uh, but it kind of you know, so that's the, the there's about a ton of that uh, on board, mm. um, and then you've got a whole bunch of what are known as Cypriot pithoi jars. Now, these are sort of bigger uh, jars that are actually normally used as, as containers to put other smaller bits and bobs in. And it's in these um, kind of pithoi jars that we've got sort of smaller pots, jugs, uh, wall brackets, glass discs, bits of jewellery, and, of course, these cylinder seals that are kind of coming from the different communities uh, that the the groups are trading with. Um, and kind of as a, it's this absolute smorgasbord collection of objects um, that are being that are being moved around you know shoving there's also ebony logs there's ostrich eggshells um my particular favorite is there's a bit there's a bit of elephant tusk but there's also hippo teeth um, and hippo teeth mm. seem to be used as a sort of vaguely easier to work with kind of um kind of ivory uh, and indeed there's one hippo tooth that's already been carved into the shape of a trumpet uh, kind of as part of <laughs> as part of these objects so um, you've got this this absolute small spot and then in there as well you've got uh, pieces of jewelry that really caused a stir when they were found so there was a gold scarab um, that was found that was inscribed with the cartouche of queen nefertiti so this ship had also been putting in to egypt um, and of course you know being able to kind of uh, align it with a particular ruler allows us to date it uh, much more conclusively now queen nefertiti was the wife of uh, the pharaoh akhenaten who was ruling around about the sort of 1350 to 1300 bce which gives us a bit more firm date for for when this vessel was moving um, and kind of after those two uh, you get to kind of the most famous ruler of them all tutankhamun so it kind of gets you into the sort of um, well-known periods of of Egyptian history um, but this uh, so you know you can start to get a sense of the range of stuff that this ship had on board of it everything from those big heavy duty um, copper and tin ingots all the way through down to hippo teeth um, carved like trumpets and and gold cartouche gold um, scarabs from Egypt Tell us about pomegranates. Oh. They're interesting. Yeah, so, you know, and alongside, we haven't even got to the perishable stuff. So, you know, alongside that, there's tons of olive oil, there's tons of herbs, there's tons of spices, there's all sorts of uh, perishable goods that, again, you know, extraordinary. The, the remains of this stuff has remained on the seabed for 3,300 years and then was excavated carefully enough uh, by the archaeologists working at 45 metres under the water to then be able to be analysed and discovered for what they were. And that included remains Actually, of Michael, I've got a, I've got a, yeah, I've got a list of them here. Hang on, let me just come in here. Um, acorns, pine nuts, pine cones, wild pistachios, olives, almonds, grapes and figs, herbs and spices, including coriander, black cumin, sumac seeds and chocolate charred barley as well as all sorts of other pulses and seeds and as you were going on to say pomegranates yeah i mean it's a phenomenal list isn't it of stuff both <laughs> from the fact that it was on board all this stuff was on board the ship but also that we are able to actually 
technologically uh, discover the remains of it three and a half yeah, yeah, um, yeah. thousand years later. And and so the pomegranates are there. And, you know, pomegranates are interesting because uh, they're used for a mul- multitude of reasons, we think, in this period. One is that actually the juice is used to sort of ensure that the perfume smells combine more uh, strongly uh, with oils so that, you know, a perfumes, you know, perfumed oil smells better for longer. But also they have a really important role to play in uh, funerary ritual and in the afterlife. So, you know, these are not just your casual uh, fruit that people are liking to snack on while they're sailing around. These are a high value good in and of themselves um, that have really important ritual connotations as well as kind of expensive um, economic connotations for making that highly expensive, nicely perfumed oil um, that kind of makes them again another major luxury good um, that is being carried around uh, by the ship. Um, but 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 I think if, if we're talking kind of about things that this ship were carrying my my vote for the sort of best thing is possibly one of the unintended uh, cargoes uh, of of this ship because uh, underneath all of this stuff and in amongst all of this stuff uh, the excavators working for, you know underwater archaeologists are working 45 meters down under the water three and a half gin martinis down also uncovered and were able to uh, preserve and then bring to the surface and then study the half a jaw of a mouse um, and uh, they discovered that this was uh, related to the Syrian uh, uh, kind of house mouse population. Uh, so this poor little mouse, they think, must have crawled on board the ship uh, at uh, one of the last ports that it put put in on. So again, it helps us understand this route. We've got the golden scarab kind of that's come up from Egypt. So we know the ship must have been there. We know that the copper, when we analysed it, came from Cyprus. Um, we've got this house mouse uh, telling us that it put in um, kind of near probably the Syrian port of, of modern port of, of Latakia. Um, and then we have the snails. 32 land snails, or the remains of them, were found on board uh, this ship, along with a couple of sea snails that had found their way in after the the ship had sunk. But 32 land snails that, for different reasons, ended up on board this ship. And a number of them were stuck in all that um, terebinth resin that I talked about, that ton of terebinth resin uh, that was contained in the Canaanite jars. And when they analysed the snails, and, you know, isn't this the joy of, of discovery that there is something called the Journal of Molluscan Studies um, that is dedicated <laughs> to snail studies? Um, and they were very excited because they could prove that these snails came from a very particular area just north of the Dead Sea of Israel. So you kind of we can we can we can pinpoint the origins of the terebinthine resin thanks to these snails that got caught up in it, but also some snails that seem to have got caught up in the sort of brushwood and stuff that was used to line the the base of the ship kind of so that the copper ingots weren't kind of lying directly against the the hull um and again we can trace those as well and they help us to understand part and parcel of the the route of the ship as it sort of seems to have sailed uh, kind of from the from the southern mediterranean coast from egypt all the way up past the levant all the way up past turkey and probably as some further indications show is heading towards um the world of mycenaean greece well all of that from this uh um, remarkable discovery. And Michael, thank you so much for sharing it with us today. And um, I'd encourage everyone to do what they can to find out more about it. Actually, couldn't where, is there a museum? Where is it on show? Where can people go and Yeah, absolutely. This? So you can go and see the, the wreck itself as it's been excavated at the Bodrum Museum of Underwater Archaeology. But if you are uh, a scuba diver yourself and you're taking your honeymoon or just a normal holiday uh, in Cash, <laughs> there is now the Cash Underwater Archaeological Park that has been uh, set up where they have actually created a replica of the Ulubarun ship 
and sunk it and sunk it at a lower depth so you only it's only about 20 meters under the water so you don't need to be a, a kind of 45 meters down uh, underwater scuba diver to be able to go and have a look at it but you can get a, a bit of a feel um, for what it must have been like to explore this ship underwater fantastic stuff well thank you very much indeed michael thank you Thank you all so much for listening. Now is the time for me to ask you for help. Please leave us a review or rating on iTunes if you're listening on an iPhone. If you leave a review, I promise I'll read it out. All of this helps us rise up the rankings and get listened to by more people, which helps us do our job to help those who do not know about it appreciate and understand the importance of maritime history. Uh, Please also check out our fantastic YouTube channel with its mind-blowing new material there, showcasing the maritime world in an entirely new way. Most recently, there's a fantastic little animation showing how composite ships were made based on the most beautiful hand-drawn sketches made by Harry Cornish, who was chief ship surveyor and artist extraordinaire at the Lloyd's Register Foundation in the mid-19th century. Please remember that this pod comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. You can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and make sure to check out their latest project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature, filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. It's astonishingly good. Just Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And of course, please join the Society for Nautical Research search you can find them online it's a brilliant way of finding out all about the maritime world from the very best in the business and it's also a fantastic way of meeting people so i very much hope to meet you soon at one of their meetings